We are ready. Okay. Namaste to all of you. Here we are together in the satsang for this week. And um, I received an interesting suggestion of satsang. As I said um, a couple of weeks ago, it's not my intention to go immediately into another long series of satsang, maybe not in November and maybe not even in December, so probably only in January. I'm thinking about giving a commentary on the Shiva Samhita, <clears throat> which is one of the fundamental texts of uh, the kind of yoga that we do, that we teach and practice here in Agama. So, um, until that time, or if there come uh, some other better suggestions, better ideas about what people want to hear about, uh, until that time, as I said, I will do some satsangs on uh, various smaller topics, independent topics separated from each other, and one of them which... um, or one one of the things which seemed to attract people is that after so many seasons spent talking about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, making some connections, like I received some questions already about uh, the story of this covenant, what is this new covenant in the meaning of uh, comparing the Ten Commandments which were given to Moses, and uh, comparing the yama and niyama from yoga. So there are a few very interesting subjects there. For tonight, I have found it refreshing that after talking so much about the heart, in the case of Jesus, like Jesus is teaching a path of the heart, I cannot say the path of the heart, because uh, there is Bhakti Yoga in India, there is the Sufi mysticism of Rumi, all of them are teaching parts of the path of the heart. And although Jesus is so perfect as a, an avatar, as a divine model, we cannot say that what resulted from the teachings of Jesus is the only path of the heart. Not to mention that in the Christian mysticism, there is some theological uh, thinking on Ajna Chakra, therefore the use of intellect. There is some use of the self-discipline and willpower, therefore some things pertaining to Manipura Chakra. So it's not clean to say, it's not just a simple thing to say, well, that's the path of the heart and that's the end of it. It is one aspect of the path of the heart. And... um, I found it refreshing because I received a question about the impediments of the mind as described in the Yoga Sutra. And it was very beautiful to put together the mind with the heart. Because in the moment when you teach the path of Jesus, and the path of Jesus is a path of love, surrender, forgiveness, Compassion, although the name compassion is more used in Buddhism than in Christianity, but it is a certain manifestation of compassion which is contained in the path of Jesus. And a few other things which are there. In that moment, most of these things are happening in one's mind. Like if you decide to forgive everybody who wrongs you for the next 100 years. 
and you are going to be like the Lamb of God. You are going to be an angel. Whatever bad is done to you, you will forgive and you will be in the heart. But that means that your mind is working in a certain way. That means that your mind takes some decisions. You process things in your mind and although you say, I am in the heart, the heart has a mind. And in that mind you evaluate some things. Although there is a mind, and sometimes we tend to speak bad about our mind, like, oh, the mind is a cold thing, and people who are in their mind, they are so ugly, and they are so destructive, and so on. The mind has a heart in it. There is the projection of the heart in the mind, and the projection of the mind in the heart, as we say in yoga. For those of you who know deeper the system of Agama Yoga, is the famous story of the sublevels that chakras have sub-levels in which they reflect into each other, and therefore there is a mind in the heart, and there is a heart in the mind. Therefore there can be a mind which is heartful, and a mind which somehow misses that heartful part, but these are parts of the mind, and there can be a heart which is mindful and full of mind, or a heart which is not so much connected to the intelligence and to the mind, it is not expressing itself in mental ways. And thus, when Patanjali speaks about obstacles for going into Samadhi, when Patanjali speaks about obstacles for going into the highest forms of spirituality, it is similar, it must be similar in some way with what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you don't do this, if you don't behave like this, if this, if that, then you won't make it to the kingdom of heaven. And therefore you must think like this and you must act like this, you know. And it's the path of the heart. But in the path of the heart you make a lot of evaluations, no? Basically he asked certain people along his life that they should take some decisions. Some of them even quick, you know. And these people evaluated it by the mind. And some said, sure. Sure, I will do it if Jesus is asking me to do it. And some people said, no, I cannot, no, it's too much. I don't, uh, I cannot fulfill that. And thus, the evaluation was done by the mind. Some people tend to believe that it's all just some sort of gut feeling. It's just some sort of emotional response. But people that have a great heart, I try to think about the great philosophers from before Christianity and from after Christianity, the philosophers of Christianity itself, some of the mystical Jewish philosophers, some of the Sufi philosophers, um, Ibn Arabi or Rumi, Mevlana Rumi or others, you know, that they were very intelligent, that they had a lot of mind. They explained their love for God and they explained their moral and ethical decisions because their mind understood the rules, the Yama and Yama, the Ten Commandments, the covenants with God, and then they decided to live their lives like that. They decided to accept, surrender, forgive, love, or do the things which were included in that package. And thus... I'm simply saying it's very interesting to jump 
from the path of the heart of Jesus, which is not a path without a mind, because on the contrary, the mind must be very healthy to be able to take the decisions. People say, yeah, but if you have a big anahata, you are automatically on that. Yes, but a big anahata does not mean a lack of intelligence. Anahata in sub-level 4 is Anahata in Vigyana Mayakosha. It's an intelligent Anahata. It's an Anahata which contains the mentality of Anahata. And the projection of Ajna Chakra in Anahata, the mind in the heart, is an even deeper form, and it's Anahata at the level of the macrocosmic mind, of the universal mind. Therefore, just separating things like the heart and the mind are two separate, and you go through the mind and you go through the heart, it's not really correct it's not really possible in the spiritual life. And that's why it was a joy for me to find the question which was jumping from Jesus to Patanjali. Because like these are two things which are somewhat separate. But they are not. They must reflect the same thing. Patanjali speaks about the fact that there are nine impurities, impediments, obstacles, whatever you want to call them, in the mind. And these impediments, they make your mind and life unhealthy. They make your attitudes unhealthy. And then you will not be able to come close to the spiritual realization. And some people say, can you have the impediments of the mind and just go on the path of Jesus via the heart and then it won't matter? Obviously not. Obviously the two things have a reflection in each other and there is a cross-fertilization. When your heart is beautifully developed like in a way which Jesus would love and like, then automatically your mind is also transformed and your mind reacts in a very healthy way. Patanjali <clears throat> describes that the human mind manifests nine impediments. This nine, because nothing is coincidental or accidentally, and people have said, maybe I discovered the number 10 or 11. Maybe there are eight. Maybe number three and four can be summed up together, and then you speak only about eight. Uh, when a man like Patanjali calls the nine impediments of the mind, it's because it's numerological. It corresponds to something. And in the moment when you have said nine impediments of the mind, they are three times three. And three is a classic in India, which means there are three of them tamasic, three of them rajasic, three of them sattvic, belonging to the three gunas. They are related to the gunas. They can be related with the three doshas, like they are kapha impediments, pitta impediments, vata impediments. And in some of them it's quite obvious how it goes. And then the other thing, which is nine, which is not saying a new thing, is of course the nine types of the soul, the nine typologies of the soul, which are expressed in, the, in a part of the Sufi tradition under the beautiful tradition of the Enneagram. That the Enneagram classifies that the people's basic structure is of nine types, and these nine types, when connected to yoga, there was long, long time ago when there was a question for me to comment on this, how does the Enneagram relate with yoga, I have revealed there that it is about 
the Hrid Chakra, the eight spokes of Hrid Chakra, the eight typologies of the human soul, plus the middle one, which is number nine. So all in all, nine typologies of the human heart. Eight plus one, the Bija plus the eight spokes of Hrid Chakra. So, <clears throat> therefore, we can see that there is a heart in the mind and the mind in the heart. And when Patanjali speaks about his issue, he speaks about the human heart. Because these names are very slippery. You say, uh, we let's talk about the human heart. But actually, we talk about the human mind as well. The mind is our heart, in a way. Because again and again, the heart has a mind. And the mind contains the heart as well. So, this being said, it's up to you to do more thinking. I have never done an attempt to equate the nine impediments with the nine typologies from the Enneagram. This corresponds to the type 1. This corresponds to the type... It's probably possible. It's probably even relatively easy. This work has not been done. I have also not tried to see if these impediments, they are three of a type, three of a type, three of a type, and if they are grouped, or Patanjali speaks apparently chaotically, like the number one, the number four, and the number five are the tamasic ones, and the number two and number six and number nine are the rajasic ones, and the other ones would be the tamasic or the sattvic ones. This also has not been done. So you have to keep in your mind that when Patanjali says that there are nine obstacles, he speaks from Ajna Chakra. He can see the archetypes of the mind. He can see the soul, the human soul and its typologies. And that's why he doesn't say, well, I ran through it and I found about nine things which disturb you. And I'm sure that if I would have doubled on the subject more, maybe I would have extended the list to 11 such impediments. Yeah? There is always an archetypal and numerological thing involved at this level, at the level of Patanjali and other authors of his caliber and other spiritual tests belonging to the Shastra category, to the divine category. And that's why you always have to think in this way, as well, like which are the typologies. Basically, Patanjali, in his meditations about the human mind and soul, he found out that there are nine problems, impurities, generically in the mind, but now then we can go to what uh, archetype do they belong, you know? and that these impurities create an obstacle or another obstacle to the spiritual realization. Slowly, I'm going to read them with a short comment on each one of them. The comments are public. There are so many commentaries on the Yoga Sutra. I myself, 12 years ago, I made a large commentary of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And when I reached to this Sutra from chapter 1, is the Sutra number 30. So it's 130, 1 with 30, chapter 1, Sutra 30. I have already exposed some of these things, so if you will be able to find anywhere any uh, lectures, any of my satsangs from those years when I was talking about the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, when you'll see the commentaries of 130, you are going to find references to uh, these things. But I did not focus specially on them at that time. 
this satsang I just want to speak only about those. So you think, you know, oh, it was beautiful, we have lectured on Jesus for three years, I would like to listen to Jesus, I would like to be the way Jesus wants me to be, I would like to fulfill some of those goals, but unfortunately it seems that sometimes I'm too egoistic, and sometimes I'm, I don't know, too distracted, and sometimes I'm too much like this and too much like that, and much, you know, of course, what to do, to go to the yoga hall and work one hour every day on Anahata Chakra, Anahata Chakra, like you tend to apply logically, so a yogic solution, you know, like if I had a 10 times stronger heart chakra, then I would be 10 times more and more often in the heart. And then maybe I would be able to live according to the precepts of Jesus. But the question is, if Anahata Chakra would be stronger, would, does it mean that I would manage to eliminate the impediments of the mind from my heart? Or will the impediment still be there? And I'll just have ten times stronger energy in some directions where I'm already open. And then if I can love, you know, let's say I'm very much feel love when I see small children. You know? And then whenever I see small children, I'll feel ten times more love. But that doesn't solve the problem that I cannot forgive my enemy or that I cannot uh, give God the first place in my life, the most, the greatest importance in my life. And thus, I'm telling you all this to understand that um, when you see obstacles on the path to Jesus or on the path outlined by Jesus, at the same time, you are hurting against the impediments of your own mind in the way of Patanjali. Both of them speak about the same conundrum, about the same problem of human evolution, of becoming a Buddha, of becoming perfected, but each one of them is describing it from their own specific point of view. So let's see what does Patanjali see as obstacles in the mind. The first of them is listed as Vyadhi, and it is physical illness or disease. And some of the comments brought to this are, like when our body and health feel drained, tired and sore, it is completely natural to feel despondent, as though our health was completely beyond the reaches of our own control. Often this physical discomfort arises from imbalances and negative energy circulating from the mind. A restorative approach combined with full-spectrum self-care can help dispel the challenge of Vyadhi. I remember when I was studying chiropractice, the old monk who was teaching me chiropractice showed me very clearly that some people who had displacements of their bones and therefore chronic suffering, like for years and years, they had pains in the body, they could not sleep at night, they could not bend over, they were like full of discomfort and these people living in constant pain, they were like a wounded tiger. They were like a wounded animal. They were grumpy and they were, you know, like their life was not happy at all. And then these people were very much handicapped in their religious feelings. They did not feel too much devotion towards God. They did not feel too much friendship, kindliness love, forgiveness, compassion towards other people. 
and some of them were even manifesting symptoms of mental disease. I have met cases where this great healer who taught me part of his art of healing demonstrated very clearly this person is not completely crazy, maybe a bit imbalanced, maybe a bit oversensitive, but basically the root cause are physical suffering. If your liver is not okay, if your thyroid gland is not okay, if other and other important things in your life are not okay, then you can become unrecognizable by your own friends, by your own family. It was Albert Einstein who said, it is refreshing sometimes to think that the difference between an imbecile and an intelligent man is one milligram of iodine in their thyroid gland at the right time of their embryonal development. Like if some children don't get iodine from their mother, then their thyroid does not develop, then that impedes the development of the brain, and you get a child born idiotic by medical terms, like there is a disease called idiocy, and the child is born idiotic, truly, no, it's not an insult or anything, it's a medical diagnosis, and it was all because a bit of iodine missing. I don't know. So, okay, we can philosophize that, that that's because of the karma and that's because of the things from previous lives for that baby. And it may be very well true, but on the other hand, it shows that if the physical body is disturbed, especially in some of its key aspects, in some of its key points, then automatically we are not at our best. We are definitely not at our best. So pain, disease, blockages, no, they all impede. And I'm not talking here about the disease of the brain. That I don't know. Oscar got Alzheimer's and he's uh, riddled with dementia and you can't do... That's an extreme case where the disease goes directly to the brain and it affects directly the cognitive functions of the brain. But remember, even a kidney disease even a liver disease, even a stomach discomfort, even a thyroid gland disturbance, and others and others, they can produce things. Then you do, that's why yoga in the beginning, it has this chapter on healing. You cannot aspire to climb the Himalaya of spirituality when you are sick. When you are sick, you will not be able to climb on Mount Everest. And therefore, in the beginning, You do yoga for one year, two years to actually make yourself well again. That's why for yoga, healing is not a purpose in itself. For yoga, healing is a help to unblock your mind. It's one of the nine impediments which can keep your mind stuck in its pain, in its darkness, in its imbalance, in its misery. And then... Uh, you know, you say, I want to do Raja Yoga according to the method of Patanjali, you know, but you don't. You never reach to really do it at the high level where it is required. Therefore, paying attention to the physical illness or disease is a very, is the first thing. The second, Patanjali talks and he calls it Stiana, 
which is usually translated as apathy, lack of interest and enthusiasm, boredom, sometimes plainly laziness. A commentary for it says as follows. Quite prevalent in times of constant stimulation and searching for the next big thing and new experiences, many practitioners find that their initial excitement around the yoga practice fades and is replaced with dull ambivalence. We get tired with the pursuit of our goals as they fall into routine. How to connect back to one's original intentions, to find focus, maybe even to change up the style or technique, might just do the trick to re-engage one's enthusiasm. Our subtle energies and rhythms change seasonally. Why not let our practice mirror such shift and satiate our needs accordingly? Always practice in a way that enriches one's experience rather than dampen it. The essence of this is, of course, first of all, boredom. The mind is a monkey. And as long as our interest for yoga is mostly happening in our mind, then it is legit logic. It's expected that we will get bored of it. This boredom manifests in various ways. Now, do you think that Paramahamsa Yogananda, who started yoga when he was 18 years old, and when he was in America, he was 60 years old and he was still teaching yoga. So this man had been practiced and taught yoga together for more than 40 years. Do you think that he was bored? Like Yogananda was a man, like you and I. <clears throat> he was a human being. He had a mental monkey. Of course, he had a certain control, a certain degree of control over the mental monkey. But you can be sure that there was a part in his mental monkey which was bored. In the beautiful documentary on Tibetan yoga made by Arnaud de Jardin in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, in the chapter, the message, in the, the, column, the message of the Tibetans, in the second part where he talks about great yogis, he shows one yogi from eastern India visiting one yogi from northern India. They are Tibetans, but they are refugees in India, and they pay a visit to each other. And he says, what do two great yogis talk about when they meet with each other? You know, maybe they meet with each other twice in a lifetime or you know, once every two years. So what do they talk about? And he says, paradoxically, they talk about anything else except yoga. Because yoga they do every day. They do for themselves every day. If the other one is doing a very different type of yoga, I'm saying, how is your yoga compared to my yoga? You know? But I will not go very deep. Because my mental monkey is to a certain extent bored. No, it happens even to yogis. And still, Yogananda and other people, being human beings, they manage to stay 40, 50, 60 years on their pursuit of yoga and of spirituality. And although a part of their mind was satiated with yoga, you know, like I've done yoga in and yoga out from morning till evening, you know, that like I'm if somebody is showing me a movie with Charlie Chaplin, I find it funny, you know, it's like it's a diversion, it's like it's something distractive, you know, oh, here, here's Charlie Chaplin doing things, you know, it's like it makes me forget about my yoga obsession or obsessive compulsive thing, no, and I'm doing other things. And still, these people, they did not relent, they did not stop, they did their own spirituality, they didn't drop out of spirituality, 
Sometimes there are shades of it. Like when he was young, Abhinavagupta was a great yogi. Then when he became in his midlife, he did things about aesthetics. And when he became older, his text, what he wrote, was philosophy. So first a yogi, then an aesthetician, an artist, a philosopher of art, and then a philosopher in general. You know, if you would ask, what about this mantra? What about this, you know, Abhinavagupta would say, man, this is what I did when I was 25 years old. You know, it's like even for a yogi, the mind will get, if you eat french fries, french fries, french fries, french fries every day, for two months you'll love them if you are addicted to french fries. And then you'll start vomiting when you see french fries. It's too much to just have french fries every day. No? So the same with it. How do you do to have the quest for God to have yoga in this case? Because it's a method. You can search for God by using the method of Buddha, doing Vipassana and others. You can search for God by doing the method of Jesus. Go to a monastery and do the prayer of the heart non-stop for years and years. Uh, here we're talking about yoga because we're talking from the standpoint of a yoga school and of Patanjali himself, who is one of the founding fathers of yoga. No? And basically he says, we know there, ex- there appears a boredom, a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm. And the, if you manage to keep it within reasonable limits, then you will continue doing your practice You'll continue tapping your resources because you wake up in the morning and you don't say, uh, I have to do some padahastasana and I don't know, today it's rainy day. It's a rainy day. It really sucks, you know, like through this padahastasana and so on. But you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, why do I live this day? I'm starting a new day. It's a finite number of days that I have from now until I die. It's one more pearl on the string which is going away. One day which is going to pass. How am I going to live this day? What do I want to make out of this day? Where should it take? How should it be spent? That simply says you go back to your soul. That's why I say the mind is connected to the heart. And it has a heart. And the heart of your mind says although it's a repetitive. No? Although you have done this a thousand times already, you know very well that if you do some Padahastasana, if you do some Paschimottanasana, it starts your Muladhara up, and then with that energy you feel like doing more, and subliming, and you remember that you have some interests, and you have some projects, and you have some research, like you want to see what a big Ajna Chakra can do, or what a big Vishuddha Chakra can do, or something, and then you are going to go, like once you get started, it rolls and rolls, and it goes and goes. Yeah. So, this apathy, it comes from a lack of contact with the soul, if I'm very energized, if I'm full of ojas, then my uh, emotion, my soul, as I say, is very strong. I wake up, and either I have chaotic emotions, and I say, oh, I really have to have sex today with somebody, because I'm totally wild, and so on, you know. Either my energy goes into these sensory things, or my energy goes into my heart, 
and my heart is very keen, like it's present. It's like uh, uh, I forgot about myself. Um, um, no, then I'm like a zombie. I'm like a living dead person. No, because I don't pay attention to my soul. But the question is, what do I do for the fate of my soul? And then automatically this boredom, this lack of energy, lack of enthusiasm will disappear because I'm tapping the resources of my soul. Every day my soul is longing for Shiva. Every day my soul is longing for oneness. Every day my soul is longing for samadhi, for ecstasy, for cosmic consciousness, for going home. Either I know it or not, that's the nature of my soul. My soul is a drop from the ocean. And all it wishes is to reunite with the ocean. Therefore, as much as we can go in this samsara left and right and up and down, in the end, after thousands and thousands of lifetimes that we live, this is the essence of our aspiration. Our aspiration is to return to the origin, to return to the source, re-ligo, to reconnect with God, to be one with God. And therefore, in the moment when we are able to reconnect with the soul, what does my soul want? In that moment, the boredom and the apathy and the apparent lack of enthusiasm, it can be compensated. No? But I have to connect. That's why I'm telling often to people here in the school, do not do yoga mechanically. Just because you have a tapas, you act like an ox that is yoked to a big heavy yoke. And every morning you wake up, put the yoke on your shoulders and go like... Like an ox, mechanically. That's like a torture. It's like self-torture. It's like masochism. It's much better if instead of practicing one hour, for 15 minutes, first you motivate yourself. You go back to your soul. And you say, why did I choose to spend some time in a yoga school? Why did I choose to learn these methods? Why did I consider at some point that this is useful for my evolution? Ah, because I remember the whole story. No? Then I'm doing it with enthusiasm. It's worth it. No? Maybe I don't have the enthusiasm from the beginning, but it depends how much I think about my soul. Look at Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna could sing and dance and love God and be like a madman, be really uh, overexcited, full of bhavana, even when he was 45 years old. He must have been in his midlife crisis. Actually, the poor fellow died quite young. No, he didn't manage to experience the old age. No, but what he experienced in life he was very intense because he constantly went back to the soul. He asked his soul, Oh, my dear soul, 
What are we going to do today? How are we going to live the day of today? What can I do for my soul today? A man like Shankaracharya, when he was 32 years old, he just left his body. Because he considered there was nothing more that he could do for his soul. He had already reached the full state of liberation and enlightenment. What more he should achieve? Stay around and teach a few disciples, which is not necessarily very important for the soul. He taught disciples for 16 years, and then he still said, okay, what's done, what's, what was to be done, was done. And then Shankaracharya, without having been known to suffer from a cancer like Ramakrishna or something radical, he simply allowed himself to die. He focused on his Brahmarandra, went out, and that was the end of it. No? So it's very much a matter, this enthusiasm can come only from the soul. The third obstacle which Patanjali sees, he calls it samshaya or doubt of the self-worth and ability. To give you a quote about it, the commentator of the Yoga Sutra says, it is easy to become discouraged by the illusion of inadequacy, indecision, and the pervading belief that the one self is not worth the effort. When there are guests coming, we present ourselves at our finest during all the necessary preparations. Why then is it so challenging to do the same for ourselves, to believe that we are as worthy of our best efforts as anybody else? There is some injustice in the idea that every other being is worth our best except ourselves. Perhaps this lack of confidence belies other issues, like arriving to busy classes or intimidating spaces. To fill oneself with doubt is to doubt the entire nature of yoga itself born out of ignorance. If we experience the interconnectedness of all things, then how can our own doubt that singles us from the pack be strong enough to overtone our turn our entire faith within the practice but the faith that we have within ourselves. So this doubt is referring to the practice, it's referring to ourselves, it's referring to the method that we follow, to our guru, it refers to everything, and in modern psychology is called lack of self-esteem, low self-esteem. Like you would like to save everybody, But what about saving yourself? Uh, It's like I'm not that important. That's not true because you are Shiva, according to Kashmiri Shaivism. You are the divine consciousness. Your body is a temple of God. Therefore, you have a Dharma. You have a function on this planet. Especially when you have achieved an awakening of spirituality or at least the teachings of spirituality like a method. Maybe the method has not resulted in full satisfaction, but the method is there. You have received it. It was given to you. Theoretically, you could blossom. There is nothing which keeps you from not being the next Buddha except your own internal obstacles. And I remember one of the great saints, I think it was Christian saints, it was Saint Augustine, if I remember correctly, 
who said that doubt is the clear sign of lack of grace. Like when there is no grace, you feel that you are alone, you feel that you are left on your own, and you feel that somehow maybe this will not work, maybe I will not succeed, maybe that will not do. In the moment when you practice yoga, you start a meditation, and somebody is asking you, will you go in samadhi today? And most people, if you ask them today, when you started the meditation, did you think like this? People say, I mean, you know, I'm tired. It's the rainy season. I had a busy day yesterday. And I can find a million bullshit excuses for the reason of which I said, well, no, probably not today. In November? In November? Um, no, not even in November because it's, you know, I'm a little bit, uh, uh, you know, and when in December, no, I, you know, let's forget about 2021. 2022, I hope. No, like people from the very beginning, they create their own denial. They say from the very beginning, I meditate, but this is not the meditate of Buddha under the Bodhi tree. This is not the day when I hit nirvana. This is coming to, to have, to eliminate this, you need a certain kind of madness. And that madness is coming from brahmacharya. That means when you are full of sexual energy and boiling, and you sublime that energy, that results in a sort of impact. It's like you have a ram a battering ram, this instrument with which they broke the door to the cities in the old days during the war, you know, when they came to a fortress, they had this long wooden thing, and then in your mind there is like a ram, there's like a battering ram, which says, I'm going to break through right now. This madness, this battering ram in your mind, it's coming from the sublimation of the sexual energy, from the conservation of the sexual energy. So the more sexual energy a person has, and the less he or she is wasting it, the more that person is becoming crazy in meditation, in asanas, in pranayama, because they have this intensity. The less of the ojas is available, the more the person psychologically tends to procrastinate. Like, yeah, I'm meditating today because I have to do my tapas and I'm a disciplined person. But will the enlightenment happen today? I had a very shitty sleep and I feel a bit weak today, so probably no, not. If it didn't happen yesterday, then probably it will not happen today. This is self-hypnosis. You already have set your boundaries. You have said, no, it's not, it's probably not going. This is your doubt, you doubt yourself. It's normal to doubt But remember that the great saints, for example, in Christianity, they have seen this doubt as a lack of grace. Like in the moment when you have grace coming to you, pouring over you, in that moment your doubt is gone. In that moment you are confident and crazy and mad and wild. And you say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, now it's going to happen, yeah, it's going to happen and so on. Then maybe it doesn't happen but at least you have given a serious hit with that ram. Ten more hits with that ram, and the door will break down. 
No? So it's worth it every time to try to create this, to eliminate this low self-esteem. No? Because it's very easy to have it. No, I can very easily experience it. You know, like I compare myself to Ramakrishna, who was considered by some people in India to be an avatara, the ninth avatara of Vishnu, of Lord Vishnu. Then what comparison can be between me and Ramakrishna? I compare myself to Milarepa, who because of extreme causes spent 30 years alone in a cave and then he spent 10 more years. Now all in all he spent 40 years in a cave in the mountains doing nothing but yoga from morning till evening. Like, you know, I have done yoga now for 40 years, practically every day, you know, but have I done as much as Milarepa? I can't even, even as a joke, I cannot state that. It would be offensive for myself to look in the mirror and to say such a thing, you know. Therefore, I'm not saying it. No? But then, does this result in a lack in low self-esteem? You know, like, yeah, then I don't deserve anything. I'm a piece of shit. They don't deserve anything. No? Is this what we are talking about? Therefore, Patanjali says you have to eliminate this doubt, eliminate this low self-esteem, low ability, low self-worth, whatever you want to call it, and you have to start from the idea that you are the divine consciousness, manifested in this body as it is in other bodies and therefore each body, each life, each human being is a chance for the cosmic consciousness to blossom, to express itself, to become aware of itself, to wake up. And if not you who know yoga, There is less than a person in a thousand in your country that knows authentic yoga, real yoga. Yoga, yoga, not some monkey gymnastics nicknamed yoga. No, if you know yoga, if you know the spiritual practice, then if not you, who will blossom? Who will bloom? When? If not today, then when? It's the rainy season not good enough for you to reach enlightenment. Therefore, one has to consider this impediment very clearly because with this impediment we set boundaries, limitations, and then we are wondered why didn't it happen? It didn't happen because we didn't open our minds to everything and we need to have confidence and this confidence has to come from our connect not in from the ego not from infatuation this confidence has to come from our connection with the universal consciousness because we do not represent our own case we do not represent ourselves we represent shiva and we blossom in honor of Shiva to honor this cosmic consciousness which in Kashmiri Shaivism is called the Shiva consciousness, we blossom to express it and to do its work in the world to fulfill to fulfill the Dharma, 
to fulfill the will of God in this world. By doing this, we can stay humble, non-egoistic, without demonic vanity or pride, but at the same time, we can avoid this self-doubt and this lack of self-worth. The fourth obstacle, according to Patanjali, he calls it pramada in Sanskrit, and it is usually translated as distraction, negligence, carelessness. 21st century life, no, like we spoke about illusion as generating inadequacy, but more. Distraction, distraction, distraction. As a society, we are almost preconditioned to become distracted and in the process careless with our practice. Life has many offerings. Time becomes difficult to balance between career, relationship, health, family, and so on. Sometimes we forget to practice, and in the process we become negligent in looking after ourselves. Intoxication and addictions also fall under this hindrance. With so much stimulating our minds, sometimes we look to numb our own thoughts and escape the noise. One would imagine that yoga would be the ideal refuge. But even during a yoga practice, this obstacle rears its head, usually in the form of frustrations, irritable states, where it feels futile to try and quiet the monkey mind. Set aside times for practice, remove all possible distractions, and instead of fighting the distracted mind, let it run free, without attaching to thoughts, notice how the mind jumps from one thing to another, eventually, like a busy toddler, it will start to tire, and the stronger focus can resume. This is why, when we read the history of yoga, when we read about the life of Apinava Gupta and Patanjali, when we read about the life of Shankara and Milarepa, when we read about the life of Yogananda and others, we see that in their formative stage, when these people were students, and they were climbing the mountain of yoga, they were fighting to find their true self, they practiced self-discipline. They were living isolated. They were, you know, it's like I know so many yogis. They don't have a TV, for example. They didn't have a TV. They don't follow TV. No? It's said in the world that people spend, I don't know, four to eight hours every day on the TV. I have known personally in my youth, I lived with yogis and I myself was... None of us had a TV. None of us was watching one minute of TV. In those days, there was no internet. In those days, there were no smartphones. The only distraction was meeting with other people and chattering. People were not even doing that. They were meeting once a week, twice a week, three times per week. No, but for the rest, everybody focused on their study, reading, meditation, contemplation, their practice, no? And in this way, this is typical an obstacle. It's typical uh, vata type of obstacle. The mind which is vata is agitated. If I would classify it according to the three doshas, this is a rajasic impediment according to the three gunas, and it is a vata impediment according to the three doshas. And therefore, 
this is something which can be solved only through discipline. At the time when I was practicing much of my yoga, I was a student in the university. I had to attend courses, seminars. Occasionally I had to study to pass my exams and such activities. At the same time, I had got involved in the practice of tantra, of sexual tantra, and I was spending part of my time together with my partner or my different partners and practicing the skills of tantra. And therefore, this was already a lot of distraction. Now then, when was the time for practicing? Then I had to set time, like now I do a yoga class, now I'm teaching, now I'm learning like a student from somebody else. No, like there were fixed times which I had to have there. One of my best friends who was who impressed me in that time was such a woman who had a job. No, then she had a day where she had her own yoga class with her teacher. Then she had another day or two where she had yoga classes with her students. And then for the rest, she had hours every day, usually from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. or from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. or from 4.30 to 8.30. You got the point. Yes, somewhere after the job, after the working hours, where she was plugging out the telephone, she was plugging out the doorbell, she was locking her door. If the Third World War would have started while she was doing her yoga, nobody would have been able to tell her that the Third World War has just started. She was like completely cutting herself off from the world like she lived in a cave in the mountains. And then when you do that, like you switch off internet, you switch off the mobile phone, you switch off everything, and if somebody knocks at your door, if you have the strength, you just go and say, sorry, you came at the wrong time, this is my practice, I don't meet with anybody at this time, or you don't even answer, you don't even bother to go and answer the door, you just stay there and do your thing. That's the only way to eliminate this distraction, by taking very disciplined programs. I myself, there was a time when I was following yoga courses from my teacher, I had a few students who were studying with me and I was teaching them, and almost every day I was busy, I had hours which were ascribed to the yoga practice. And nothing could change those hours. And that automatically generated a self-discipline and it eliminated the distraction. I could not be having a distraction while I was having a yoga class with either my teacher or with my students. Willy-nilly, I had to drop everything, switch off everything, dress in my yoga costume, go and do yoga. That was the end of it. So in this way, you have to find a way to make yourself available for a very disciplined program because distraction today is 10 times stronger than when I started yoga. When I was 20 years old and I was doing yoga, my only distraction was the school. And a couple of years later, there was that I had some girlfriends. No? These were distraction enough and they were eating half of my time. 
or more, but still there was some time that I could keep for my yoga. Today, when I see the world is, people live here in Kopangan, it's the rainy season, it's not even nice to get out of the house, and still people are busy all day long with a lot of things. All this communication and electronics and internet and everything has made that if you don't switch off everything and you don't say at 6 o'clock, everything goes dead. Even if a major modification of the continents of the world starts happening. You know, nothing. Whatever happens, it's there. I'm dead at that time. If I cannot do yoga, I just sit and look at a blank wall. I do nothing, but I don't do something else. I am sitting there and my monkey mind says, okay, stay there and do nothing. And then eventually you'll say, you know what, why don't I stretch my legs? Do some Paschimottanasana, you know, at least while I'm waiting for my mind. Let me do a bit of stretching of my back. And then you do more and more and more. And after two hours, you find out, hey, I've done some good yoga today, you know. But I have tricked my mental monkey. Because my mental monkey is suffering from this agonizing need for distraction, 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 entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. The fifth obstacle, according to Patanjali, is described by him with the name Alasiya, which is translated usually as laziness, or more politely as burned out, burnout, heaviness, like, uh, you know, it's the inertia of the beginning. Sometimes, words like laziness are used, however, this carries a rather negative connotation, uh, is the heavy sluggish feeling belly or other underlying obstacles as well. Burnout is a common cause of this hurdle. Instead of the common inclination to want force movement on the body, one can practice energy building and balancing pranayama and meditation, plenty of self-care practices to restore and recharge low levels of drive. Instead of fighting the sensations of the obstacles, which can make them feel unbearable over time, listen to what they are asking for instead. An open dialogue and intuitive sense of one's own constitution can alleviate so much burden in the rest of the life as well. It starts, first of all, from the great illusion. It's obviously this is a tamasic obstacle. If the previous one was rajasic, this is a tamasic obstacle. Now, it's yin, it's tamas, it's probably related with kapha dosha, if you want to follow the idea of classifying those nine in three times three. And here, it starts from the illusion that doing yoga is difficult. No, people say, I would like to do 50 Nauli Kriya every day. And you lost. You lost from the very beginning. Because 50 Nauli Kriya for some people is like running five miles. And it's like, oh gosh, you know, you can't do that. No? And that's why what I'm trying to say here is, what about doing Kapalarandra You go there, sit on a chair, sit like me right now on an armchair, and then my yoga, I do Kapalarandra That's my yoga. No? I guess what? When you've done that for five minutes, ten minutes, then you say, ah, why don't I put my hands a little bit in Gomukasana? Ah, it's really... No? Why don't I do some Paschimottanasana? 
and in this way, once you start it, it's like a snowball effect. It rolls and rolls and it goes deeper and it goes stronger. So again, the trick here is take it easy. Start with easy things. You know, don't put in front of you a wall. I have to do 15 awulis and it's like over my dead body I'm going to do 15 awulis. You know, it's like, but what about doing the light stuff? Some abdominal massage, even in a sitting position. Some acupuncture, acupressure exercises. Like some, and uh, you know, but I don't want to stand up. You know what? Do it in a sitting position. Do it. Do it lying down in your bed. You know, I'm not saying that you should do transform that into a habit. But in the beginning, the mind is a nasty animal, and this is an obstacle of the mind. Remember. It is an obstacle of the mind. And therefore, try to trick your mind by doing gentle things, easy things. No, I remember I had a friend who was very industrious, very committed type of person, very disciplined, a Scorpio person. No, And she was, you know, and I told her something about my activity in the day. And it resulted clearly that I had taken over myself by interacting with other people. A lot of Svadhisthana, chakra, confusing energy, and a lot in like the energy with which I had interacted, and which part of it was in my aura, was, you know... And then this person said, what did you do? And what did you do afterwards, you know? Like she expected me to say, I have done a hundred Udhyana Bandhas afterwards. And my answer puzzled her, because I said, I have done a long relaxation. Understand? Like, why not relaxation? What's long with? No, people say, hey, come on, man, if you do a relaxation, you don't do yoga. Really? The relaxation is the posture of Shiva. It's Shavasana. Shiva is Shava, Shava is Shiva. No? It's the posture in which you can go in cosmic consciousness. It's a posture where you can practice yoga nidra. It's the pro- 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 posture in which you can practice astral projection. It's the posture where you can do a lot of things. It's one of the most sahasrara connected postures in the whole yoga program. It's the posture which you do in the end of the yoga program. It's like the kind of the final fruit of it. If you do get enlightened during a yoga program, maybe you reach samadhi during the relaxation. So it's not nothing. Just for people who are perfectionistic and industrious like this, it can be like, oh my God, you've you've done shavasana. It means you've done nothing. Really. But shavasana is something very big. Therefore, you have to be able to trick your mind. You want to do something? Okay, do a Shavasana. Then you compete with the obstacle number four, which is distraction, boredom. Like, I want to do something, but Shavasana is too boring. But Nauli Kriya is too challenging. No, Then you have to find something which is in between and which rides both horses, which competes with both those demons. It's not too much uninteresting, it's not that the relaxation is uninteresting. Because a lot of things can come up during the relaxation. But some people 
would say, well, you don't know, maybe, but no, maybe not. No, okay. You have to be able to fight with those demons of your mind. The sixth obstacle, according to Patanjali, is avirat, which is translated usually as desire and craving. I want to do yoga, but I have a desire for sex, I have a desire for chocolate, I have a desire for, you know, like I am restless. This is again a rajasic obstacle. Yeah? Again, you know, I am possessed by like do, 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 do something and yoga is too lame, too tame, too slow, too this and that. How will I fulfill my desires? No, I'm living for my desires. Commentary. This can be a powerful adversary, well, especially when it arises in the form of an impulse towards self-medication or an urge to numb out and escape. This is where some outside sensory object seduces the mind away from one's goals and progress. The effect is one of stagnation and even agitation. This is where a dynamic and flowing practice can break the energetic tie onto the sense object. Something like many repetitions of sun salutations, develop more self-discipline to self-practice more often than usual. This is easier today with the aid of apps and digital reminders as the craving mind is conveniently forgetful. This important to remember that all of these cravings eventually subside. All sensations are temporary, they arise often, increase in intensity, and then they pass away, giving rise to the next. One merely needs to ride out the wave. For some people, laziness is stronger, and desire, they say, I've never stopped doing yoga because of having too much craving. Not necessarily for food or some for whatever. For I have a craving to go out in the forest and walk a little bit. You know, it's like, okay, some people never feel the need to go in the forest and walk. You know, some people are perfectly happy not going in the forest and walk. You think that there are people who are locked in a room for three years doing just meditation in a sandbox. You know, so it's not. Uh, it's obvious that it's not everybody is uh, built the same. So, these desires, for some people, are very strong and they don't understand how can you resist the desires. And other people are very detached from such desires and they say, nah, no, no, I didn't, uh, yesterday, I did not avoid practicing my yoga because I had some desire. I am not, nah, and if I have some strong desires, I can cut them like this. No, like I'm that's not my problem. My problem was the fact that I was lazy and sleepy and this and that. No? So therefore it's very different. Some people who are full of desires, they don't understand the people who have inertia. Some people who have a lot of inertia, they don't understand how some people can be so possessed by desires. Like I, for example, did stop myself from practicing yoga, sometimes out of laziness. But I don't think ever in my life I stopped myself because of some desire. Because my desires, I control them, I can kill them, I can stop them, that's my temperament. But I met other people for whom it was very different. And it was this aspect of desire. So for desires, one needs to develop a good Ajna Chakra, a good Sahasrara, and together with it, a good detachment. You have to be detached from those desires. 
when the desires come, you just tell them you can as well wait until tomorrow or until next week. You know, it's not a tragedy. It's like, okay, you lose some, you win some. Now you are not going to get what you want. You know, it's a big deal. No, I want some chocolate. And then instead of that, there comes a sadistic thing, a masochistic sadistic thing to me. And he says, you know what, not only that you don't get chocolate, today we are fasting. I'm eating nothing. You know, you don't even get, you don't even get rice or bread. Nothing. You get nothing, you know. Forget about the chocolate, you know. Then it's like some people are going crazy if they have to do this. While for some people it's relatively easy and they say, yeah, I can very easily give up. That's why I say not everybody is the same. People are collapsing due to different obstacles. This desire apparently looks again like a rajasic obstacle. You know, it's like a pita dosha rajasic type of thing that I desire too much. Other people never had in their life anything like this and they say, I don't know how people... Number seven, Bhranti Darshana, living under illusion and misunderstanding. This is the big Maya. One of the greatest adaptations of the mind is the ability to create our own stories based on our experiences and perceptions that not only depict our behavior but also justify it. Sometimes this creates a cognitive dissonance where our beliefs and thoughts are inconsistent. In yoga, this is a very subtle obstacle that has the potential to unravel one's progress and practice from the inside out. An example is becoming attached to a particular technique or style of yoga. Many yogis become so loyal to a particular style or teacher that any one other is discredited. Yoga is far bigger than just the way in which one practices asanas. The end result is the same. If one's practice environment is no longer accessible for whatever reason, one needs to practice non-attachment without allowing mental blocks to form and illusory ideas to guide one's practice. This may lead one to a long detour towards one's goal, goals or completely off course. Non-attachment onto all things is key. Even when something works favorably, one has to be detached to remain open to all possibilities. This is a confusion, is a obstacle of confusion and illusion. I have had many students. They were given good practices. Agama is one of the most encyclopedic schools of yoga in the world. We literally teach more than a hundred, probably several hundreds, if we put the meditation and the asanas and the pranayamas and everything together, hundreds of yoga techniques, all of them authentic, some of them crushingly strong, like really strong. No, I was just giving an example of 15 naulis. Everybody who did 15 naulis knows what 15 naulis in less than one hour, one minute per nauli, what 15 naulis can do to you. No? So it's like, you know, it's not that things are lacking. And then people suffer, they get sick, they say, what's wrong with me? And I'm telling them, did you practice your naulis? Did you do your headstand? Did you do the Anuloma Viloma Pranayama? Did you do this? Did you do that? And people say, no, right now I'm following online a workshop on astrology and I'm studying Vedika. It's like, okay. No, this is the illusion that some people have the atomic bomb in their pocket to use and then they do something else. 
say, I'm doing a ritual to Durga, you know. It's like, I told you to do 50 naulis for God's sake, you know. Uh, yes, but I found something very interesting, you know. This is living in a total confusion. This is Maya. This is Mohana, the great illusion, you know, which is misunderstanding, illusion, not seeing things clearly, even when your guru tells you A and B and C. This is how it is, you know, like keep it simple. Keep it stupid and simple. No. Some people, because of the delusion, because of the misunderstanding, I have seen it, I'm seeing it constantly with my own students, that some students follow a method. They check up with me periodically. They have a tapas. They have clarity in what they do. And some people are all over the place. And when I t- and then they say, why doesn't it work for me? And I'm saying, compared to your other colleagues, they do something in a disciplined way, and you are all over the place. You're just living in a dream world, you know? And then you think it is the fault of yoga, that it doesn't work. No, it is this obstacle of the mind which is keeping one in a constant state of confusion. Number eight, we are coming close to the end of this list. Number eight is doubting progress and the ability to succeed. The student cannot see the top of the mountain because the student has never been to the top of the mountain, probably. No? If the student would know what a proper state of cosmic consciousness is like, then the student will be able to say, now I've been in this meditation today, or in this headstand, or in this, I have been like 90% there. I was so close. I just needed a little bit more energy. If, to, if tonight I rest well, tomorrow when I do the same program, boom, I'm sure to hit jackpot. No? But otherwise, the student cannot evaluate. The student can be one meter from the shore, but because the fog is so dense, the student doesn't realize that he or she is this close to the target. And because of this, the student is doubting progress. Actually, by some laws of karma, I have seen students who all stopped very, very close a progress exactly when they were about to make the next breakthrough this thing came like a spiritual test and then when they were three steps away from success when they were three steps away from the body tree of Buddha in Bodhgaya they gave up they gave up the spiritual test was stronger than them And this comes if you would not doubt your progress. If you'd realize, I'm really close. My teacher told me, you know, it's a matter of days, weeks, months before my crown chakra gets more open and more open. No? And I can succeed because I'm healthy, I'm focused, I'm disciplined. So what is in my, nothing is in my way. No, I can succeed. Then such a person would go crazy. It's like you are encouraged. 
It's like you have wings in your soul and you say, I can do it, I can, I can feel it's close. I can, I'm almost there, you know. Then you do it. But most of the practitioners, without a guru or a clairvoyant friend to watch this, they don't see it coming. It's just around the corner, but you never see what's around the corner and how close around the corner it is. And because of this, everybody behaves like the swimmer who is stranded in the middle of the sea. He swims and he swims, and after one hour he starts wanting to drown and to give up because he does not see any progress. If you swim in the middle of the sea, it seems you are not going anywhere. Most swimmers who were then later rescued, they said exactly this, that I was swimming and it seemed to me that the sea was mocking me and I was not moving one meter in any direction. I was exactly in the same place, although I was swimming. Even swimmers who were 10 kilometers away from a shore, you would say, come on, let's swim 10 kilometers. I've never swum 10 kilometers in my life. It's probably going to be the most tiresome, terrible swim in my life, but at least I will save my life. These people swam from 10 kilometers to 9 kilometers. And the illusion was that they were as far from the shore as when they started. And then they gave up. And they drowned. Or not, if they were lucky, if they had a good karma. So it's the same with yoga. You are swimming and swimming, and it seems you are not making much progress. Normally, if you have a good teacher, a good guru, he will tell you, man, you are not making too much progress. Or on the contrary, you go to the teacher, and the teacher says, I'm pleased, you are making progress. Things are happening. Then if you are moving what to do? The only thing is I could move a little bit faster if I made more effort. Okay, that's true. But all that is depending on a lot of other factors. Out of all the yoga obstacles, four comprise of different forms of doubt. This one, however, is a type of despondence that can be difficult to overcome. When it seems that there is no further potential for us or maybe that the system is entirely practiced in vain. Perhaps a plateau has been reached, but this is merely a matter of perspective. When this doubt rears its head, one has to assess what one is using as a measuring stick for the so-called progress. It is success in postures, or being able to recall from memory great lengths of philosophy, or is it that even with sustained practice we still feel massively negative states of mind? Perhaps an expectation is unrealistic in the first instance for what arises from a continuous practice is a full spectrum of experience and the wisdom to deal with change with grace and elegance. With familiarity comes expectation and as soon as we feel familiar and comfortable we naturally tend towards thinking that we ourselves are an expert. This is where the doubt can truly take deep root and decay our practice. A firm and solid intention a desire to better oneself is a good place to start combined with an affirmation that yoga is for everyone. Dispel the illusion that one needs to be flexible or strong or really focused to practice yoga. It's much more than the exercise. Communicating these doubts with your instructor, for they are there to help and guide, will take some of the responsibility off your shoulders and if something doesn't work for your body or confuses you, the experienced teacher will be able to shed light and adjust as needed. It's like 
you can as well simply say, either it works or it doesn't work, I'm going to do yoga till the hour of my death. God, you give me samadhi or you don't give me samadhi, you, I'm, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. You can't turn me off. You can't discourage me. Either it seems that by swimming I am making progress or I am not making progress. It is like one great philosopher said that the truth is the path. The path is the truth. It's not the purpose. This was it's one of the statements in the Zen of Dogen and other forms of Zazen. No, that you don't meditate because you want to get somewhere. You meditate because you meditate. Because meditation is the purpose in itself. The truth is the path. The truth is not that you got somewhere. The truth is that for 40 years you stood up every day and meditated. That's the truth. Then when you draw the line when you die, you've lived very well. You've done spiritually something very great. No, But uh, I didn't feel that I was making progress. Okay, when you die you will see. You'll draw the line and you'll see if it was a progress. But basically you can tell to God, you can't discourage me. You know, I will not give up. Dead or alive, I will not give up. I love you. I want you. I surrender to you. I want to reach to you. See if you can stop me. You know, because God will not destroy your soul. This is something which comes from your soul. And God loves your soul because God is in your soul and you are in the soul of God. And therefore, when things are expressed from the soul, from the aspiration, from the heart, then this obstacle is not appearing. Because we cannot see the progress. Ah, if you are with Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna says, my dear, another three weeks and you know, then, you know, but gurus like Ramakrishna are not so many. Yeah? Generally, the people who reach to be gurus, they can see your progress. They can say, right now you are swimming. In the last one year, you have moved forward one kilometer. So if you stay one more year on this course, you move one more kilometer. No? Is it enough? We will see. Time will tell. But the fact that you move in the right direction one kilometer this year and one kilometer next year, it's very good because God is not an object. God is not an objective. No, like there is, I have 10 meters till that wall and I have to reach to that wall and that is God. Remember, God is not an object. God is the subject. So as you run one kilometer that way, you cannot say that you get closer or further away from God. Because God is not there. God is the one who seeks. And you running one kilometer and one more kilometer, the path is the truth. The fact that you are on the path, you say, I've been on the path for 40 years. Great. You have been in the truth, with the truth, for 40 years. Yeah, but I did not realize. Yeah, but your guru, if you had a guru, would have realized, would have said, hey, you are doing good. You are on the path. Therefore, you are in the truth. Yeah, but I want to see it. Yes, that will come when it will come, because that comes from God. It's a realization. It's an eureka. It's something which dawns upon you. It's a sudden satori. 
that you see. And that is not something which you decide when it's happening. But you have to keep running. One kilometer every year. And you say, I'm running in, sir, I'm running to nowhere. That's true. But you are running. And as you are running, at some point you are going to open your eyes during the running and say, oh, I'm running, I'm in the truth. But there is no truth to go somewhere. The truth is me. The truth is here. The truth is I. That's why we cannot compare spirituality with achieving a diploma in a university. The diploma is an objective thing. You do five years of study and you get a piece of cardboard which says that you graduated and now you are an engineer or whatever you are. No? But the spiritual realization is not there. The answer to the question is he that asks the question. The answer is here. So the truth is the path. The path is the truth. You are running, you are walking on a path which leads nowhere. Because the answer is that you wake up when you are on the path. This is the great metaphor of the path is the truth. And that's why a teacher is usually alleviating your anxieties. And when the method is good, and when your Ajna Chakra becomes stronger and stronger, and when your Sahasrara becomes stronger and stronger, it's just a matter of time before you reach the critical mass. You look at three flowers, and you say, I wonder which will blossom first. And you can make bets, and then some people win the bet, and some people lose the bet, because you can't always predict. Suddenly this flower, this bud, decided to blossom. And you say, why did this one blossom one day before the other? Mysteries of the Supreme Consciousness. And the same is here. The Guru, except in some peculiar situations, like Jesus predicted to the twelve apostles that they were going to be enlightened in 14... At some point, he didn't tell them how many days. He told them, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit will come. But what if it came in six months instead of 49 days? Would they have had the patience to wait still to follow the word of Jesus? You know, Ramakrishna, you know, he saw that people couldn't, 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 couldn't. And then he touched them with his finger and he put some of them in samadhi, you know. But then he died of cancer, you know, because he pushed it. He, pushed, he decided to play God. Okay, Ramakrishna was a bit of a god, you know, because he was considered to be an avatar. So was Jesus, you know. But Jesus got crucified to be able to do that. Ramakrishna had a cancer as a result, partly, it was not the only thing, as a result of doing that. So in normal circumstances, the guru simply says it happens when it happens. It happens when Shiva smiles in your direction. That's when it happens. Until then, you have to be on the path. Because the Guru cannot promise. The, generally, the methodologies in yoga said if you study yoga for 12 years with a good, strong method, you will be in Sahasrara. You will have reached at least some states of Samadhi. If you reached full-on the Nirvikalpa Samadhi for three days in a row or something, only God can decide that. 
Only God can give you that. And that's why, um, again, this doubt that I don't know if I'm making progress, or it has killed many people. And what you have to do is you have to surrender. And you have to tell to God, you cannot stop me. I will do yoga until I die. You give me satisfaction or you don't give me satisfaction. I love you. I'm not a slave. I'm not doing yoga out of fear. I'm not a merchant. I'm not doing yoga because I want to buy something from you or to negotiate something with you. I love you. I do yoga because of love. And since I love you, I will love you forever. Young, old, tired, not tired, I'm still there. My attitude is still the same towards you. This is the cure. And finally, the last, the anavashtitatva, the inability to maintain achievements. That's a very vata one, a very airy one. Sattva, of course, I guess. To practice the beginner's mind, for the beginner always arrives eager and has everything to learn. One can keep abreast of doubt. One can experience that we are all forever learning and relearning. Every Each time we arrive on the mat, imagine that it were for the first time all over again, open to all possibilities and ready to move into your true potential. There's always more to learn. The philosophy is born out of the belief that yoga is to be practiced over lifetimes and many of yogi has gone into their last days hoping that they may be reincarnated in a form where they may continue to practice. No? And therefore, inability to maintain achievement. Some people's mental monkey is so restless that they get some wonderful states and they say, Swamiji, when I did a tapas of one month on Anahata Chakra, I truly understood the heart chakra. Then I really understood what Jesus was talking about and what Rumi and Ramakrishna and others like them talk about. I really understood the heart. No? And yesterday I was on Svadhisthana and confused and bitching out and being like this and being like, why don't I stay in Anahata? Why didn't I keep that state of consciousness? Yeah? For some people, they come this vata instability of the mind in which you know they reach and then they don't have it and you tell them don't you remember that three years ago you were doing this and that and you're great it's kind of yeah you know theoretically now that you say it i remember but somehow i didn't stay there this is a lack of ground this is definitely a lack of muladhara it's a lack of stability it's a lack of grounding. And then, you know, you can simply say exactly like the water coming again and again as the shore, and eventually it erodes the shore. Exactly like this. If I need to do yoga for a hundred lifetimes, I will do yoga for a hundred lifetimes, and eventually I will be there. It has to be, this problem has to be solved with a stability and with a philosophical approach to life. No, because it's like, but one of my teachers I remember, because I had, I met, I had colleagues in yoga who were encountering this. And they said, what to do, you know, because I cannot keep my state of mind and so on. And he said, when you had a beautiful accomplishment, what did you do in that day? From morning till the hour of that accomplishment. How did, at what hour did you wake up? 
what did you do as soon as you woke up first half an hour? Like, did you do your morning kriyas or not or what? What did you do after? Did you do a yoga program? What was it? Was it music meditation or was it Paschimottanasana? Or was it first Paschimottanasana and then a music meditation? What have you done? Can you today do exactly the same thing? Like put your alarm clock to ring at the same hour. When you wake up, you do exactly... And you follow the same course of activity. You ate what time? I ate at 1 o'clock. Okay, you eat again at 1 o'clock. Like you follow exactly... Because it's like a recipe for success. And if you have reached it once by following this protocol, you are going to say, yeah, but I'm not the same, the day is not the same, the astrological... It doesn't matter. You cannot control those. These are just poor excuses. What you can control is what you do. And what you do, you just do the same. You apply the same recipe. What worked yesterday, it is 90% that is going to work today as well, if I do it again. No? But you don't do any difference. If in that day you had sex, you have sex again in the same way. If in that day you didn't have sex, then you don't have sex. No, like you do exactly the same, like a robot. And then the result will be the same, because somehow you found the winning combination in that day. No? But the, although we tell to many people this, they don't do it. It seems to them too much artificial, like, what do you mean to do the same? Just do the same, you know, like, like you are programmed like a computer, like a robot. Do exactly the same, at least once or twice or three times, you know, not for the next 30,000 days, but for at least once, two times, three times, and see if I'm right, because you are going to see that the same things tend to happen, because there are many unknown factors in our subtle bodies in our subconscious mind, and you might have done a beautiful combination of two, three of them, which hit exactly the jackpot. And then you say, I don't know what the combination was. Then the only solution is to repeat the whole sequence, identical. No? So take a day where you had a beautiful accomplishment and do it exactly, millimetrically. Again, you are going to say, it's another astrological sign, I am 10 years older. It doesn't matter. Those things are there. But you can do at least what you can do. And your part is that. So this is how you stay away from the last impediment of the mind, which is the fact that sometimes some people have a moment of enthusiasm, a moment of brilliancy, and they hit jackpot and they say, wow, I got something. My Anahata Chakra was... Amazing! I've never felt... Why not today again? Do exactly the same thing today and have another day of a wonderful Anahata Chakra. You can reproduce the things. But when people try, they don't. Because there is a karma to it, you know? And then karma makes you say, yeah, but, you know, I felt like uh, doing something original. I understand if after a hundred times you want to change... Then I understand you got bored and it's too much to do exactly the same thing every day for a hundred days in a row. But now I'm talking about one day, two days, three days, just a little bit as an experiment. That's why this is how you compete. This is how you compensate for the ninth impediment. It is a beautiful exercise for you 
You put them on paper, you find them in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, in any edition of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, with their Sanskrit names and everything. And it's interesting for you to see which ones of them are Kapha, Pita, Vata, which ones of them are Rajas, Tamas, Sattva, which ones of them are which typology from the Enneagram, if you are very versed, if you understand very well the Enneagram thing. And in this way, you will be able to understand more because these nine impediments, they are not accidental, they are not coincidental. They represent the actual structure of our soul. They are the human typology. And Patanjali understood very well that the human is subjected to this obstacle. I was happy to debate with you tonight a different subject, try to put it together with the path of the heart from Jesus and see that we talk about the same thing with different points of entry, but the human being, the heart, the mind is the same in the end, and therefore try to uh, work both on your heart and on your mind by using this understanding of Patanjali. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining. See you in the coming activities of Agama. And God bless you.